How many of you have ever read A Tale of Two Cities? A couple hands, all right. When I was in high school, I was forced to read the famous novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And it begins like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's almost all that I remember. Tonight we're back in Proverbs chapter 3, and we'll see the best of times and the worst of times. And we'll see how wisdom helps us during both of those times of life. And so we're going to concentrate most of our time on just four verses. Chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. But then we're going to close by reading verse 13 through 18, which is a hymn to wisdom and the blessings that it brings. Since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just sort of remind you where we're at. Uh, chapter 3 began with God revealing wonderful reasons why we should obey and why we should seek wisdom. Uh, remember, he could have just said, because I said so. He has every right to do that, but he doesn't. He actually does give us reasons and, and give us blessings, and, and we know that trusting him and following his wisdom is always beneficial. And so then we saw this wonderful encouragement to trust God completely. Completely fall upon God with all your weight. And that was verse 5 and verse 6, those most famous verses uh, in all of Proverbs. But now all of a sudden, Proverbs, uh, Solomon brings up two potentially surprising thoughts. One is about money and one is about discipline. All right, so look at chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. Solomon writes, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Obviously, we understand just by a quick reading of these verses that the first two verses teach us that we should honor God with our wealth, and the next two verses teach us that we don't need to despise God's corrective hand. But why are these verses just dropped in like this? It seems almost random, but it's really not. It relates beautifully to the context. Remember back in verse 5 and in verse 6, we talked about how no area or aspect of our lives is unaffected by trusting Christ. Trusting Christ or trusting God, it begins with trusting Christ to save you. That's where that, that trust relationship starts. But it doesn't end there. Trusting God is bigger than just a religious decision. Remember we used the, the, the terminology that we should trust God entirely exclusively and extensively. Jesus Christ changes everything, not just where we go on Sunday mornings. And listen to this, not even where we go when we die. Thank the Lord, trusting Jesus does change that. But it also affects our lives right now. Right now. Always, in every aspect, in every situation. And so what Solomon does in order to illustrate that 
in order to show what it means to trust God entirely, exclusively, extensively, in order to show what it means to acknowledge Him in all our ways, is that He brings up these two extremes of life. And He gives us wisdom's insight into both of them. In verse 9 and 10, He brings up prosperity, the good times, the best of times. And then in verse 11 and 12, He brings up pain, the worst of times. The times we suffer. And that's the connection with the earlier part of chapter 3, with, with the whole context. So tonight we'll see that wisdom trusts God during both extremes of life. During the best times and the worst of times. Whether it's prosperity or whether it's pain, wisdom trusts God. And so let's look a little deeper now into verse 9 and 10 and see how wisdom deals with prosperity or wealth. First of all, let's just start by, by sort of asking this question. How does this world typically use or view wealth? There might be several different answers. I'm going I'm to give a few thoughts here, and this isn't meant to be exhaustive. But while you're thinking, uh, think with me on, on these as well. Wealth can become an idol. Don't some people worship money? They worship success. They worship prosperity. Some people make prosperity and wealth their number one goal in life. They want more money more than anything. But what did we see Sunday in Haggai? If you're chasing something other than God, if anything other than God is your top priority, you will always be left unsatisfied. You're putting your money, as much as it might be, into a bag with holes in it. Solomon's own words that I used Sunday in that, in that sermon, I quoted from Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It is worth going ahead and noting right now that there's nothing evil about money. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being wealthy. Solomon warned not against money, but against loving money. It's the same thing Paul did in 1 Timothy when Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's one of the most misquoted verses in, in all the Bible, right? Because how often have you heard people say, ah, money's the root of all evil? No, it's not. Loving money is, but money's not bad. Loving money is where you get into trouble. And sadly, a lot of people in this world prioritize wealth and it becomes the idol they're worshiping it, it's the thing they're chasing and craving after other people view wealth in a very selfish way and they use it selfishly they don't consider other people at all but instead they constantly buy things or do things to impress others to flaunt what they've earned to fulfill, the, to fulfill their own desires. They want people to be impressed with their house or amazed at their car or jealous of, of the clothes they're wearing or whatever it may be. And now, it's not at all wrong to have nice things. It's not wrong at all to enjoy what God has blessed you with. But there's a difference between enjoying God's blessings in a spirit of thanksgiving while also being generous to others 
as opposed to constantly being selfish about what you've been given. So wealth can be an idol. It can be used selfishly. But some people are quite the opposite. But they're still not godly with their money. Because wealth can be hoarded and trusted. All right, these are the people who, who hoard their wealth. They're not necessarily extravagant spenders. And they're not wasteful either. But they're definitely not generous. Because it's their money. And they guard it. And in essence, it, they're trusting in it. It makes them feel secure to see that number on their bank account. Because that's their, that's their security blanket. That's their shield. That's what's going to get me through no matter what. I'll be provided for because I have X amount of dollars. And I'm not saying that's an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive list about how people view and use money. But I think a lot of this world would fall into one of those three categories. And there's probably some overlap there as well. I think the one about wealth being an idol might just be a big umbrella. And everything uh, wrong about loving money could, could fit into the idea of it being idolatrous. But that's this world. What about us? What about God's children? What about Christians? Shouldn't we have a different view of wealth? According to Solomon in verse 9, wisdom views wealth as an opportunity to honor God. Throughout our study in Proverbs, we're going to see godly instruction about, uh, about our wealth and our business dealings and, and all sorts of things that involve money. But it begins with our overall attitude about it. We must understand that wisdom views wealth as an opportunity to honor God. No matter how much you have, have you ever thought about your money and your possessions in those terms? That these are tools, these are opportunities, instruments, chances that I have to honor God. Well, that changes everything all of a sudden, doesn't it? That I want to use this wealth to honor God. The word honor, it has the idea of heaviness. You say, what does that mean? I heavy God? Make him heavy? Sometimes I mention how picturesque and concrete the Hebrew language is. And we see that here with this, uh, with this illustration about honoring God and, and the idea of heaviness. What happens when you put something heavy on something that's soft? It makes a mark, doesn't it? It, it makes an indention. It kind of presses down on it. There's an impression there. You might even be able to see the image of what left the mark. It might not just be, you know, pushed down, but you might be able to see, see the image of it. In, in part of our garage at home, we have some of those soft black floor mats. You know, they're about half an inch thick. And they kind of weave together. They interlock together. And if it's pretty cold or rainy, we try to pull in the van. And just the way it is, one tire is going to sit on those black floor mats. And when we move the van the next morning, there's an impression. Okay, the van is heavy. And, and you can see those tire tracks in those floor mats because the weight of the van press down on it. That's sort of the picture of this Hebrew word here. God is heavy. He is impressive 
He's weighty. He's important. He's glorious. And if we understand that, then we'll want to use our wealth to show it. We want to use our wealth to demonstrate that we realize how heavy God is, how honorable He is. And then hopefully, we use our wealth in such a way that God seems more impressive to this world. That they realize His heaviness, that they even see His image in what we've done with our wealth. I know Jesus wasn't necessarily talking about wealth, but He said, let your good works shine, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The wealth that you've been given is an opportunity to do that. So our entire attitude when it comes to wealth is a reversal of this world's attitude. It's not an idol. It's not to be used selfishly for your own glory. And it's not to be hoarded up for security. But rather, it's an opportunity to give God glory above all else. Notice the second half of verse 9. You see that word, first fruits. The first fruits referred to the very first portion of a farmer's harvest. Those are the plants that ripened up uh, and were harvested while everything else is just getting close, but these are, these are ready to go and we need to pick them now. It's the very first part of the crop that's ready to pick. And harvest season in the ancient world was such a joyful and exciting time. Now we think food comes from Kroger, so we sort of miss out on some of this uh, food celebration. But I want you to think about this. After all the work that an Israelite farmer put into preparing the ground, removing all the rocks out of his field, plowing the ground, planting his seed, working the field, hoping and praying for the right amount of rain, waiting patiently, and then finally, after months, it's harvest time. And you know what? He's got to give it back to God. The very first ripened crop. Give it back to God. According to the law of Moses, they were to take their first fruits and give them to God as an offering. And it was a way to honor God. To worship Him. It was a show that you understood that he was the one that gave the blessings anyway, and without him there wouldn't be a harvest. And it showed also that you trusted him. Because to give up the very first part of your edible food, and you give that up for God's glory, it meant that you trusted him to supply more. You trusted that there would be more harvest that he would provide for what you need. And that's exactly what Solomon promises in verse 10. Verse 10 isn't meant to play on your greed when he talks about your barns being filled and you're your, your, your bursting with wine. Don't think, oh, awesome. If I give some to God, then he's going to make me rich. I'll give to God then. That's what the health and wealth and prosperity gospel peddlers teach. That's not what Solomon's teaching. 
This is an illustration of God taking wonderful care of you and blessing you when you've put him first with what he's given you already. We talked about it a little bit Sunday in Haggai a bit too where the Jews that had quit rebuilding the temple, they focused on themselves and they had prioritized their own kingdoms, their own houses over God's. And so they forfeited this, right? They were unsatisfied with what they had and they were lacking things they even needed because God withheld the dew. He said, I didn't give the harvest. I didn't give, I, I, I had droughts. I withheld the rain. If we seek God first and seek to honor him above all else, he'll take care of us. And really, if we have the right attitude about wealth to start with, that we don't own anything, but we're just, we're simply stewards of what God has given us and what he's given us is an opportunity to honor him anyway, then why would that attitude change if God blessed us more? See, we don't manipulate God into blessing us by giving him something. I'm going I'm to put $50 in the offering plate Sunday, and God will give me 100 this week. You can find people that teach that sort of junk. It's false. Our attitude should be, great. Now I have even more to honor God with. Because above all else, wealth is an opportunity to give glory to God. Say, but we're not all farmers, Brother Matt. We're not, we're not bound to the Old Testament law to keep the sacrifices and take actual first fruits from our, from our garden to church. And so what application can be made for modern day believers? What's the principle here? One author just very simply says the principle is clear. Keep God first. Give him not the leftovers, but the very best. When we're talking about finances and wealth, giving back to God should come first in our budget, not last. Do you wait and see how much you have left at the end of the month before you give your offering? Do you wait and see how much is left over after you've done everything you've wanted to do before you generously help someone else? Before you honor the Lord with your wealth? Or do you have wisdom and you budget for God's glory first because it is the most important thing that you can do with your wealth? I read one author who used a, a great illustration about this. He said that, I'm paraphrasing his, his illustration, but... Giving to God is not like tipping a waiter. You wait till the meal's over and you decide how good the food was and how good the service was. And so we'll kind of see what we're going to tip him now. That is completely backwards in how we're to give to God. Honoring him comes before everything else. And if you do that, he'll take care of you. And he'll bless you for that. And if he does bless you even more, you've got even more to honor him with. You know, you don't have to be rich to honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor him with whatever he gives you. In fact, if you don't honor him with a little, what would make anyone think that you would actually honor him with a lot? Didn't Jesus give lessons like that? Be faithful in a little? 
Honor him with whatever he gives you. But we do see prosperity uh, and good times in these verses, especially in verse 10. And if you are prosperous, if it is, quote, the best of times, that's not time to forget God. That's not the time to become arrogant and to quit trusting and to think you can be self-sufficient and that, well, I don't really need God right now because I've got everything under control. Look at my bank account. No, that's not trusting God. That's not acknowledging Him in all your ways. Wisdom trusts God during prosperity by honoring Him with the wealth that He's already given you to start with. But Solomon knows that life isn't always cupcakes and roses and rainbows, right? What about during tough times? We all want to live in verse 9 and 10, right? Sign me up. What about verse 11 and 12? What about the worst of times? Sometimes life's tough. It's painful instead of prosperous, and we have more burdens than we think we have blessings. Sometimes even God's children suffer. And this suffering could come into our lives different ways or for different reasons. Sometimes, through no fault of our own, we may fall into a trial like James talked about early in his letter. Sometimes, suffering or trials may come because of our own sin. They may be consequences of, of things and decisions that we've done. Like in David's life, he suffered some consequences and had some trials and suffering because of his decisions that he made. And sometimes, God may bring them into our lives for a purpose, just like he did with Paul in the thorn in the flesh. But what happens if that, uh, what should we do if that happens? Should we turn our backs on God? Are we to quit trusting Him during those times? Are we, to, are we to question His love for us? No, absolutely not. But Solomon says through the eyes of wisdom, we can view suffering the right way and see both the godly benefits that it brings and the assurance that it brings. And the benefit is found in verse 11 as he uses this word discipline. He describes these tough times of what we might call suffering as, as times of discipline. This is the same word that he used all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 2. And he's used it a couple times. But it was translated as instruction. You may remember it. It's the word that has the idea of being corrected. It's that learning or growing or being educated and kind of maturing with some correction. And there's benefit there. And we learned this in James. We've seen it a little bit in 1 Peter early on that God is so good that he can even use trials for our benefit because trials produce endurance and then ultimately maturity. Trials test our faith. They grow our faith. They refine our faith. All of those benefits and more things that we read throughout the Word of God. But a fool doesn't care. He doesn't want God's correction. You can look back at verse 7 of chapter 1. And you can see that Solomon already said that fools despise wisdom and instruction. A foolish person doesn't want correction. But we shouldn't be like that. And so Solomon, as he's urging his son to have wisdom and to trust God in all things, 
Part of that means having a certain attitude about God's training. Really here, it's what we shouldn't, or how we shouldn't view God's training, right? Look at in, in verse 11. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. The word despise is a really strong word, and it, it often has the idea of rejection. It was used when the nation of Israel rejected God as their king, and they begged for a man to go fight their wars for them. It was used when God rejected Saul as king. It was used when God rejected uh, David's older brothers as the next king after Saul. And even the prophet Amos uses this word to talk about God rejecting the outward motions of worship when the people's hearts were not right. It's a strong word. Rejection, despise, loathing something, disdaining something. Those are all good words here. That's what a fool does when God's correcting hand comes in his life. He rejects it, despises it. That's not what wisdom does. A wise person welcomes and receives God's correction and training. And the next part of this that we're not to do, not, not to despise the Lord's discipline uh, in verse 11, or be weary of his reproof. The word weary is interesting because it's, it's not the typical word for weary. It doesn't mean uh, to be tired or, or something like that, to be uh, you know, restless or just fatigued. It's not that sort of weariness. It refers to a feeling of disgust. of loathing and abhorring something. A couple of times it's used in the Bible and it really sort of brings this out in different contexts. You remember in Genesis, Rebecca used this word to describe how she felt about Esau's Hittite wives. She abhorred them. And so Jacob can't marry one of these women. <laughs> Send him back to, to where our people are from. In Numbers, this word was used to describe what the Israelites said about the food God provided them, which is, seems like a whole other sermon. But Numbers 21.5 says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. A fool is nauseated and disgusted by correction. It makes him sick. But a wise person is not. It's medicine for a wise person. Not only does wisdom see the benefit that results from correction that we talked about a little bit, the strength, the growth, the endurance, the refining of our faith, but along with that, wisdom also sees God's correction as an assurance. Notice verse 12 again. Solomon says, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. Wisdom does not view correction as reason to question a loving relationship with God, but rather as proof of it. Is it the same true with earthly parents? Or at least it should be. If one of my children lies... And I discipline them. 
I, I train them. I correct them. That doesn't mean they're not my child. That doesn't mean I don't love them. It's quite the opposite. It means they are my child. It means I do love them. And I'm doing this. Why? For their good. Because they need to learn and grow and mature and become the person that God wants them to become. As a loving, perfect Heavenly Father, God wants what's best for us. And if we need training or correcting, He will do it because we are His. And He wants what's best for us and He wants us to become more like Him. Listen, God's correction is not a problem in your life. It proves there's a relationship there. If God never corrects you, that's when you need to do some soul searching. The author of Hebrews, you may have already been thinking about this, quotes from these verses. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read the first 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm reading from the ESV and at chapter 12, immediately following that famous chapter about uh, these great men and women of faith. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We could stop there, but I want to read verse 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees 
and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Straighten up. Sit up straight. Show some strength. Be encouraged. If God's dealing with you, that's a good thing. Don't ever despise the conviction or the correction of God. That provides assurance. And that's how wisdom views it. So all of this in verse 9 through 12 actually relates back to those famous verses of, of 5 and 6 of trusting God. Wisdom trusts God and sees his hand at work always. Whether it's prosperity, whether it's pain, or whether it's somewhere in between. So these aren't just some random truths that were just pulled in out of nowhere. But they serve as great illustrations of what Solomon just said. Of trusting the Lord always and always acknowledging Him in the best times and in the worst times. So a few takeaways from tonight. First of all, honoring God comes first, not last. We sort of dealt with that a little bit Sunday with, with Haggai and their, their excuses not to serve God and the way they didn't prioritize Him. It's easy to apply this financially, and we should. Solomon's talking about wealth. He's talking about their first fruits. But it's not limited to wealth. Apply that to your time, your efforts, yes, your money, but everything you have. Do you give God your leftovers? Or do you give God your first fruits and honor Him? And wisdom, wisdom trusts God during prosperity by honoring Him with the wealth He's given. Don't forget God during good times, but be thankful and honor Him. Your wealth, however much that is, is simply a tool in your hand that you have the opportunity to use for God's impressiveness. Third, do not be a fool and reject God's correction. During the worst of times, when you're suffering, when there's trials, yes, life has its share of heartaches for many different reasons, but thankfully, we have a God so powerful and so loving that He works good out of what we would call bad times. Let him do that. Don't reject his correction, but embrace it. And so wisdom trusts God during pain because it understands both the benefits it brings and the assurance it provides. Just like during the good times you don't forget God and turn your back on him, you don't do it during painful times either. Don't turn your back on God when things go wrong, when you're suffering, but embrace His correction and His training and His discipline for your benefit. And find some peace in the fact that He's dealing with you as His child. Isn't wisdom pretty awesome? Isn't that great? You'll never have a time in life where God's wisdom 
is useless or unnecessary or not applicable. Never a time when wisdom doesn't bless you somehow. I say that's worth singing about. So let's end tonight's reading. I wish I could sing this, but we're going to read verse 13 through 18, which is a hymn that Solomon includes, a hymn to wisdom that begins and ends with the word blessed. Proverbs 3, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time that we could look into your word and learn from the great wisdom that, that came from you, that you blessed Solomon with. Help us to view all of our times, Lord, whether, whether it be prosperity or pain or anything in between through the eyes of wisdom to trust you and acknowledge you in, in everything we do and in all our ways. God, we thank you that you're a God who is so gracious to sinful people like us. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. We pray you are encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.